0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Diana Green Foster about her new book, The Turnaway Study, Ten Years, A Thousand Women and the Consequences of Having or Being Denied an Abortion. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I wonder if we can begin by going back to the very start of this study, because as the introduction said, this was a more than 10-year project. Can you take us back to 2007 and what the... What the state of abortion studies was like for academics, and kind of position us in the world where this project initially began.
1: Sure, um, a lot has changed since two thousand seven, and what in two thousand seven the dominant idea, the talking points of in this debate was that abortion hurts women, and there was this idea that women would come to regret their decisions, and this idea was both the motto of anti-abortion groups, but also it was an idea that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. So uh, Justice Kennedy in 2007 said that he thought it was, um, that though there was no reliable data, he thought that that women would come to regret their abortions and become depressed and have loss of self-esteem. And this was in a decision about one procedure, but this concept that abortion hurts women was clearly affecting his sense of whether abortion is right or wrong and how restricted it needed to be and where he definitely was right was that there were no reliable data Um, at the time there were where he got this idea was an amicus brief from a group of women who participated in a support group for women who regretted their abortion and who submitted their stories to him as part of an amicus brief for a Supreme Court case. So that's not a representative sample, which is why he admitted the data weren't reliable. But really, nobody knew how often it did happen that women come to regret their decisions, And it wasn't clear whether there were mental health harms from abortion. And if we restrict abortion on the basis that women might come to regret their decisions, we also didn't know what the mental health harm could be of denying someone an abortion. So this study started at a time when this was the dominant question. I think lots of since we haven't really gotten the word out about the study completely, um, probably lots of people still have these questions. And um, what this study did was to try and create reliable data. So have a study design where some people get an abortion, some people are denied an abortion, we follow people through time to see how their outcomes differ. So that was 2007. I think also professionally, very few um, uh, professional societies covered abortion in any uh, detail. It was kind of seen if you were doing abortion research, maybe that was advocacy instead of science. And really, um, you know, for a procedure that between one and three and one in four women have, the lack of scientific study of it is was is totally shocking.
0: And you you mentioned in the book uh, towards the back that during this time period, people who were interested in abortion weren't really seen as academics, they were seen more as activists, even at, at conferences where, where data was being presented.
1: Yeah, there definitely were scientists who were well-known scientists who'd studied it, but it just wasn't common and um a colleague of mine went to give a job talk at another university and um and some some old professor in the back said well that's your she presented about provision of abortion and and the professor in the back said you know that's your advocacy where's your research when you know studying the science of the safety of provision of abortion is entirely uh, you know, valid question, considering that a lot of people need abortions and trying to figure out how to provide them safely can should not be considered advocacy. It should be considered kind of standard medical research.
0: And so it was in this environment that you got the idea to do the turn away study. So First of all, could you give us the elevator pitch, the you know, two-sentence synopsis of what the Turnaway Study is, and then can you tell us what inspired you to write it?
1: So the Turnaway Study is a longitudinal study of women who received an abortion that they wanted versus women the outcomes for women who were denied an abortion they wanted. And so it allows us to see what the effect of abortion is on women's health, their emotions, their physical health, their family's well-being, their future aspirations, and what the effect of being denied an abortion is on all of those things. So I don't know, I hope we have a long elevator ride, but that that's my short elevator speech. Um, it's We studied a thousand women from 30 abortion facilities across the country um, to recruit women, and these were entirely women who were turned away because they were too far along in pregnancy. So at each clinic, we recruited a woman who was just over the gestational limit of that facility and just under the gestational limit, hoping that those two groups would be similar. And so the differences in their outcomes over time would be a matter of whether they were just over or just under that gestational limit. But because we picked so many facilities and they had different limits, you know, we recruited women who received an abortion at... Um, in Dallas who might've been uh, rejected for abortion in Fargo, North Dakota. You know, the, 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 what gestation you're at uh, and whether you're able to get an abortion varies tremendously by geography.
0: And so how did that lead to this enormous study? This was a huge under- undertaking, and you recruited people from a number of different fields to help you, was everybody based there at your university where you work? How did you assemble your team and how did it come together to be uh, this book?
1: Yeah, the, the, the whole study, I, um, in 2007 when Justice Kennedy was wondering if women might be depressed by abortion, there, it wasn't clear how to study this, you know? Um, you clearly can't just solicit stories from women who wrote in that they regretted their abortion, and um, and so it was one day that um, a physician at my medical school said to me, she wonders what happens to the people that she turns away from the abortion clinic. And it just hadn't occurred to me that women are regularly turned away from clinics, but it was that population, the people who wanted an abortion and couldn't get one, that help us answer the question, what's the effect of abortion on women's lives? Because... Uh, If you study women who have abortions, it's very difficult to know if their outcomes are bad. Is it bad because they had an abortion? Or is it bad because the situation they were in, that they opted to have an abortion, resulted in worse outcomes? And this is not to give away the findings of the book, but I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily true that women who have abortions have bad outcomes. But the question is, what would their outcomes be if they weren't able to get an abortion? And so having this study design where we had some women who received an abortion and some women who were denied an abortion, then we can actually assess what's the effect of abortion on women's lives compared to the only alternative that women have when they're pregnant and don't wanna be, which is to carry the pregnancy to term. And you asked about the team. So this started very small in 2007. I, um, we recruited from one abortion facility in California and um, realized that women actually were willing to participate in this study. And the study eventually over three years grew to, to 30 sites across the country. And it generated so much data, much more data than one scientist, me, could possibly analyze. And also we collected data on so many different topics. So we collected mental health data emotional data uh life aspirations relationships um socioeconomic outcomes children's their the health of their children so it was so many different sorts of expertise that was also beyond what my own set of expertise um and so i pulled in uh women scientists they happen to be women i didn't uh, discriminate <laughs> uh women scientists from Uh, across my university and from outside my university who had expertise in specific areas so that we could all collaborate. So economists, psychologists, epidemiologists, uh, social, um, public health uh, specialists, sociologists all collaborated on this. I myself am a demographer, so that's like a statistician that uh, analyzes data on births death's migration, which maybe sounds a little dry, but in fact you can use demo- the skills of demography to analyze a lot of different outcomes, so um, relationships and health and uh, you know, just the decisions about what, how women make the decision whether or not to become a mother.
0: And you reference in the book that you had already done some research on abortion, but from a different perspective, is that correct? Most of my
1: work prior to this Turnaway study was actually evaluating uh, family uh, contraceptive programs. So looking at um, how giving free contraceptives to low-income women and men um, averted pregnancy. And my biggest claim to fame before this study was showing that if you give people a one-year supply of birth control, rather than making them come back to a pharmacy or clinic every month or three months that they're actually less likely to become pregnant and more likely to continue to use. So um, we generally in our country make contraceptives as difficult to access as possible, and then we complain when people don't use them consistently. So that was mostly I had done contraceptive work. I had done just a little bit of um, helping physicians, scholars um, with data. So. Um, uh, Bimla Schwarz, a professor and physician at UC Davis, had data on whether, uh, who would be willing to provide abortions if um, uh, if policies changed, you know, what is, which physicians are willing to provide abortions in what settings? So I had just assisted on other people's, provide the statistics background. I hadn't um, led my own abortion study before this one.
0: And- now that we have the finished product, it's easy to say, this is what you always intended it to sure. be as the reader. But when you started the project, is this what you envisioned that it would be a book and it would be a 10 year uh, project? Is it um, is it possible no, to foresee I'm that not, it could turn into this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not so optimistic that I could have imagined this. I What I wanted was to provide quality scientific data to a very political topic that would be um, that would help us understand the health effects of abortion effects of policies that restrict abortion that's what i wanted to do and in some ways we succeeded a while ago in that Um, we this team of scientists have um have published uh uh, 50 peer-reviewed papers in top journals in in JAMA Psychiatry, in the journal Pediatrics, uh, in Journal of Annals of Internal Medicine. We've published the findings from this study in top medical journals. Um, And yet, somehow, not everyone in America reads medical journals. I know that's surprising. And (laughs) I feel like, although there was a lot of media coverage of certain aspects of our study, a lot of the story of the study just wasn't being covered. So we had front page, Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times coverage when we, um, rep- Fox News coverage, when we reported that abortion does not cause mental health harm. But we didn't, um, but when a paper came out that looked at, well, what are the health implications for children when their mom does or doesn't receive an abortion, um, that got almost no coverage. Um, and... So I think we were, the the media is ready to talk about whether abortion hurts women, because that's been part of the discussion, but very, um, very little coverage of whether restricting access to abortion hurts women. And so, so two things, one is that I felt like the coverage was only focused on the conversation we were already having, and not this other very important conversation that needed to happen. There've been hundreds of restrictions passed since this study um, started in fact over 500 restrictions on abortion passed at the state level since this study began and no conversation about what the harms of, of those restrictions might be what might the effect be on people's lives um, and the other thing is that covering the the scientific findings is one thing but abortion is is not just a you know easy scientific topic it's it takes understanding that there are real people involved. And so part of the idea of the book is to share the stories of women so that you see this is not an abstract debate. It's, it's a, um, a policy. It's a healthcare service. It's a, it's a life turning point that, that is experienced by real people across America who have their own stories and who, uh, it turns out, are willing to tell those stories. So the book is trying to fill the gaps that were not covered by just releasing scientific papers into the world, but to try and tell the full story of both the need for the study, the findings of the study and the people who are participated. And
0: um, the book does an amazing job of that because it it doesn't it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't do the things the media is used to adding in when we talk about this topic. Uh, you mentioned in the book that the media often presents it as a debate um, or as, as, a, as a moral or religious issue um, or as an economic issue um, or as a legislative issue. Um, and you very deftly turn away from those frameworks and bring it down to the reality of women and their lives. And so, as you've mentioned, and I'll just remind listeners that for this study, they recruited a thousand women from 30 abortion facilities over three years. And then they interviewed those women over five years, which means they conducted over 8,000 interviews with these women. And then they did 31 in-depth interviews and from those in-depth interviews, uh, there's 10 different um, women who are presented as case studies in the book with their privacy details changed, but the um, their own words are not changed. So their own story is told by them throughout the, sto- the book, and then it's um, also examined in detail uh, to look at this overall question of... Um, how every year thousands of people are denied abortions because they turn up too late in pregnancy. And so this is a book about what happens to women who come in just under a clinic's deadline and receive a wanted abortion, and what happens to those who arrive at the very same clinics just a few days or weeks later in pregnancy and are turned away. Um, And it's also a book about the state of abortion access in our country and the people whose lives are affected by it. One of the really important distinctions that you make in this book is that it, you feel it's really important not to say that women waited to get an abortion, and this book really uh, explains in why we wouldn't why we want to get rid of that way of talking about it. Can you can you explain to the listeners why um, it's not that women have waited to get an abortion? Yeah. I think, I mean,
1: it is a natural question to wonder how it could be that a woman would show up too late in pregnancy to get an abortion. You know, what is going on that she um, would, would not show up immediately upon her first missed period? Um, and that, that frame of thinking comes from people who um, have regular periods. Um, and not everyone does have a regular period. And some people bleed throughout pregnancy. And so if they didn't think they could be pregnant, one can, it's definitely possible to not realize that you're pregnant. And um, so, so the, the idea that people are waiting is not accurate. What the leading cause of showing up late in pregnancy is not realizing you're pregnant. And it happens to people, young women who have never had a regular period um, women who have just given birth, so their cycles are off and they're feeling physically pretty crappy anyway, um, people who with chronic health conditions that maybe have some uh, symptoms in common with pregnancy, and then people who just never have pregnancy symptoms. And, you know, when it's a wanted pregnancy and the person is is jogging every day and feeling wonderful, we just think she's lucky. But if if she didn't want to be pregnant and Um, didn't think she could be pregnant and doesn't have any symptoms then it's very possible to end up in the second trimester before realizing that you're pregnant and so that happens um, not commonly but when it happens it definitely makes it makes there be a risk of showing up too late in pregnancy and then the other reason people are late is that we make abortion access very difficult in most parts of this country so in All but 17 states, um, if you're low income and receiving Medicaid, uh, Medicaid won't cover the cost of your abortion. So this can be $500 to $1,000. And just a very small fraction of people have that amount of cash on hand. So as soon as you realize you're pregnant, then you start the process of trying to find a clinic, trying to get to a clinic, trying to raise money to pay for a procedure, it can be um, just trying to get through to the hotlines that might offer you some discount or some uh, some aid can be a, a whole day experience. I had an intern try and get through to one of the largest abortion funds, and she spent six hours on the phone just waiting to have her call picked up. So it's this is not it's not easy to access abortion. And some of the restrictions wait, for example, um, laws that say you have to wait 72 hours between, you have to go in twice to a clinic and wait 72 hours between visits, that obviously adds even more time. So it's, um, we have a system that is far from efficient and pregnancy is just not physiologically the same for everybody. And some people don't have symptoms and those people um, have some risk of not realizing they're pregnant.
0: And one of the other things you brought up in the book, which I was really glad to see, is that at-home pregnancy tests are not, for all people, as accurate as the box says. And that's something I know from my own circle of family and friends and personal life, that Mm -hmm. um, the test can tell you that you're not pregnant, and so you go along thinking, well, it's something else. Or if you call the doctor to try to get in and the nurse says, well, did you take a pregnancy test and you say yes and it was negative, they give you an appointment like six weeks out with the caveat that, you know, if something terrible happens, go to your emergency room. So that can delay even getting diagnosed as pregnant for a person who is is on it. They suspect that they could be, but the at-home test is telling them no. And you had some of the people in the case study who one woman in particular, she had several negatives and had to wait to get in to get a blood test
1: yeah i think that urine pregnancy tests that are available from stores are the same urine pregnancy tests that are available from doctors offices so i don't think i mean to disparage the quality of of drugstore tests but only that it's absolutely the case that people can be pregnant and test negative because um yeah tests are not perfect and early in pregnancy or other uh, physical health conditions can mask the, um, a positive pregnancy test.
0: Yes, that was my takeaway of how you explained it, and also my takeaway of the anecdotal experiences of people in my world, that no one was disparaging those tests, but they, they don't universally detect it in all women because of a host of other reasons going on with women's bodies and other medications that they take or health problems, et cetera. And so one of the other things then is the distance that women have to travel. Um, you mentioned the mandatory waiting periods. Um, other things uh, that you brought up were uh, protesters um, and um, that if and then the fact of finally getting to a clinic and finding out that that clinic feels that you're further along than what they offer and they send you on to another clinic. Can you talk about some of these other um effective barriers to receiving prompt uh treatment yeah
1: um it is um trying to get to a clinic and um receiving a referral to yet another clinic and having to renegotiate your whole your ride your transportation money your um your companion whoever is going to escort you if you have a companion who's gonna uh go with you all of that it's a logistics can be a logistics nightmare we it is not um other people at the university of california san francisco where i'm a professor have written about abortion deserts that there are many cities of over 150,000 where there's no abortion facility nearby and for people in rural areas those distances are are often very large so um it's it is geographically uh can be quite challenging to to get to an abortion clinic.
0: And you say in the book that the media often presents the issue of abortion as a debate. We have been so focused on the question of whether women should be allowed to get an abortion, we have missed the question of why they would want to and what the consequences are when they cannot. Can you talk about uh, why women would want to, because the book gives these rich case studies that really take us into these women's lives and show us the complexity of their, their lives and the clarity of the decision that they've made.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite stories um, in the book that's not from a woman in the study is um, of a Ohio uh, state congressman who um, is the author of, of you know, a heartbeat ban in Ohio and a whole bunch of other restrictions. And he's being um, interviewed by an Al Jazeera uh, woman reporter, and she asks him, you know, why do women have abortions? And he's just flummoxed. He he says, he literally says, I've never considered that question. So here's a guy who's restricting access, but he's never put himself in the shoes of somebody who would want to end a pregnancy. And I think that's exactly why it's possible to, you know, have very strong anti-abortion feelings with is is to um, only consider the status of the fetus and not consider the experiences of a woman who's pregnant and so we asked women um, their reasons for wanting to have an abortion and the women in our study look very much like um, data from women from uh, even larger national studies and the most common reasons are economic of feeling that you can't afford to have a child or you can't afford to have another child. Um, um, A lot of women say that it's not the right time to have a baby. It can be because they're in school, because they don't have stable housing, because their um, relationship isn't good, um, because they have other life goals that they feel like they want to achieve first. About a third of people give reasons having to do with the man involved in the pregnancy, that the relationship isn't good, or he isn't willing or able to be um, a father. Um, and then the next most common reason is needing to take care of the children you already have. So 60% of women nationally and in our study who have abortions are already moms, and they um, report that they aren't ready to have another child because they need to take care of the children they already have. Um, and so I in the book, I, I go through all of the reasons with examples from women who gave this reason, but... Um, The really important thing about these reasons for having abortions is that they so tightly link to what happens to women when they can't get an abortion. So it's women are making these decisions about a pregnancy, and when they're unable to get the outcome they want, when they're unable to get an abortion, their outcomes are exactly as they feared. So the most common reason is not being able to afford to have a child, and in our study, we see that women who are denied abortions are more likely to become poor. They're more likely to have to raise their existing children in poverty with not enough money to meet basic living needs. Um, people report that, it's not, um, that, they're, that, they have, that their relationship isn't good enough, and we see that relationships dissolve regardless of whether the woman is able to get the abortion or not. Um, the need to focus on other children, we actually looked at the outcomes of women's existing children by whether they received or were denied an abortion, and we find measurable um, differences in outcomes where the children of women who are denied abortions fare worse than the children of women who receive them, both in uh, measures of child development, and in socioeconomic uh, security and whether there's enough money for food and housing. So um, these, these reasons are important for both humanizing the experience of being pregnant when you feel like you aren't able to carry a, a pregnancy to term, but also they're really important for showing that women are making careful decisions. They understand what that they're pregnant, they understand that if they don't get an abortion, they'll have a baby, and they understand what it takes to raise a baby, and they've considered all of that and decided that this isn't the right time to carry a pregnancy to term.
0: And one of the things you do in the book is talk about one of the ideas that the popular culture has about why someone ends up in this situation or how she could have prevented it in the first place. And you say in the book, the only kind of person who can count on never needing an abortion is one who can't get pregnant. And one of the uh, things you provide in the book to support that point of view is what you call the contraception reality. Um, And you have a really fascinating chart where you explain what contraception really is in a woman's life and what it would really take for a woman to never, ever be pregnant. And so you said if a woman becomes sexually active at 18 and she doesn't start menopause until age 45 and she wants to have two kids, she would have to take 6,844 contraceptive pills in her lifetime and take them correctly. She would need to use 2,000 condoms if she doesn't want to use the pill. Or she would need to have four to six IUDs inserted and removed she would need to be able to afford co-pays and have uninterrupted access to health insurance. And then in one column of this chart, you show how many unintended pregnancies happen despite correctly using and consistently using that birth control. And that even on the pill, she can expect up to two unplanned pregnancies, and similar sort of numbers for condoms. Uh, the IUDs seem to have the, the lowest um, number, but not all women, because of various health concerns, can have an IUD. Um, it's really, when you make that chart and you show how virtually impossible it is for a healthy, responsible woman to avoid an unintended pregnancy, it gives an amazing context to what you said, which is that the only kind of person who can count on never needing an abortion is one who can't get pregnant.
1: Yeah, I would say it's not impossible to avoid unwanted pregnancies through one's life, but what it takes is a lot of luck. You know, you have to, um, it's not, if you like the available methods of contraception and you're super diligent about always using them and you have great insurance and you can always afford them, your chance is a lot lower then if your body doesn't react well to the existing methods, you don't have insurance, you can't, uh your partner refuses. You know, if there's so many things that can make preventing pregnancy more difficult. So it doesn't um, you know, I know very few people who are uh heterosexual, who have never had sex at a time when they weren't trying for a baby. <laughs> and in fact, there might be none of those. Um, And then there are, and then to, um, and then to always use a contraceptive method. Many couples actually sometimes don't use a method and, um, you know, any one act may seem low risk, but if you repeat that over time, uh, the chance of becoming pregnant becomes a lot greater. And so by making contraceptives difficult to access and by not trying to make a bigger variety of methods that might, meet people's needs so we we have a lot of work to do in in contraception before we're gonna before it would be right to stigmatize people for becoming pregnant when they don't want to be pregnant
0: and you saw you talk about in the book that we need better or more methods of contraception and you say that there are differences between what women want from contraceptive options and what the current reality is and you also talk about distrust um, particularly, uh, justly so, uh, among women of color. Can you talk about those uh, those issues?
1: Yeah. So uh, separate from the turnaway study, I've done studies of what features women want in a contraceptive method and whether the existing methods have those features. And for a large fraction of people, there is no method that has the features that they want. And people are, you know, for taking um, a medication every day, or having hormones in your body all the time. And people have high standards about not wanting massive side effects. And I think that that's reasonable. Um, And so very few people love their contraceptive method and have no um, side effects and feel that it meets all of their needs. Uh, It's particularly so for um, African-American women. I did a study with uh, a physician at my university, Andrea Jackson, where we asked people about what features were important to them in a contraceptive method. And African-American women had higher standards. So there were more me- features that they thought were extremely important compared to uh, white women who are not uh, Latina. And this speaks to, I think, um, you know, dist- part of the reason is that uh, African-American women were somewhat more wanting a method that they could use independently, that they didn't need a physician or clinician to remove, that they had a control over whether and when to use it. And I think this is because of our long history of not respecting women's preferences in contraception, all women, but particularly women of color. And there's an excellent book by um, Dorothy Roberts called uh, Killing the Black Body, where she's extremely critical of contraceptive methods, and lays out the history of um, the testing of contraceptive methods on women of color of women in puerto rico were um, were the study subjects for the birth control pill Um, and um, i think there's just there has been a clear disregard for what women say is their experience with methods that makes women distrust uh, clinicians about what the side effects would be on a method, so we have a long way to go Contra- i for all that um, negativity about contraceptives they're a miracle and to be able to it 's been a, a positive transformation since the 50s to actually be able to have some control over the timing of one 's pregnancies it's i 'm not saying that um, all contraceptives are bad, but just that we need work and that work needs to be focused on the preferences of the people who will use those methods um, and try and get methods that meet more people's needs.
0: And you also talk about, briefly, um, about reproductive justice. And that's something that you just touch on towards the end, but since we're, we're going along this topic, could you talk about reproductive justice?
1: Yeah, I think the old frame around abortion is uh, is about rights, whether people have a right to end their pregnancy, and that um, is such a narrow focus. In 1994, a group of African-American women um, gathered in preparation for a population conference, and they it changed the frame of the discussion, so it's not just the right to have an abortion or not, but also the right to... Um, have a child when you're ready or not to be able to parent that child to be able to parent that child in a safe environment um, free from state violence and um, community violence. So there's um, this reproductive justice. It expands the frame to not just be abortion pushing for abortion access, but to push for uh, reproductive autonomy and decision-making um, for all reproductive outcomes, not just abortion, and to center women of color, because this uh, debate often fo- focuses on white feminists and excludes people of color, um, and um, yet many women of color are affected by these issues. So trying to bring forward new voices, new perspectives, and broaden the conversation. And one of
0: the notes that I have uh- taped up here says trust women. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading through this book, it it seems that so much of the legislation is because the women aren't to be trusted to make their own decisions. But the phrase trust women was on the clinic walls where Dr. Tiller worked. Can you talk to us about Dr. Tiller? Yeah,
1: so um, George Tiller um, was a a physician um, who was one of very few who was public about um, providing abortions uh, later in pregnancy. So he was a physician in Kansas. He'd inherited uh, a medical practice from his father after he got out of the military. And when he took over his father's medical practice, he found that his patients were saying, your father did an abortion for me, you know, uh, now my daughter needs one or, or now I need one. And um, it, he hadn't even realized that his father was providing abortion, but it um, he, I think, was um, the target of a lot of violence against um, his clinic and his staff. Um, his clinic was firebombed. He, at one point, was shot in the arms. Um, but he continued to provide abortions. And within the abortion provider community, he was really seen as a hero for um, his attitude towards his patients and his motto, which was "trust women," um, which uh, which he, um, you know, is trying to be receptive to what his patients were telling him their needs were, and not um, and being humble and being generous um, towards people. And so um, I really, why I put this in the book is because this idea of trusting women's decision making about their own bodies, about their lives, about their aspirations, is, could be seen as the, the final lesson of this study, too, that when, you, when a woman decides that she isn't able to carry a pregnancy to term, we can trust her decision making. We can trust that she understands the circumstances of her lives, and that when she's denied that abortion, her outcomes, her physical health outcomes will be worse. Her economic outcomes will be worse. She'll be less likely to have a wanted pregnancy later, less likely to form a high quality romantic relationship that this has. And her children will be worse off, both the children she already has and her chance at having future wanted children. So this is... You know, It's a wide-ranging study that looks at a lot of outcomes and tries to look at abortion decision-making, why women make the, the, that decision, and what the consequences are when they are unable to get
0: an abortion. And in the book, you do let us know that the majority of uh, abortions are our first-trimester patients. Um, but you say it's easy to demonize women who have later abortions. The assumption is that they failed to prevent pregnancy, and then they took too long to get an abortion. The quiet truth about abortion between twenty and twenty-four weeks it is is that it is often a problem of late recognition of pregnancy, followed by real obstacles, financial, travel-related, and legal, to getting an abortion.
1: Yeah. Um... Sometimes the debate about a later abortion is all is, you know, trying to say, well, how often is abortion um, after the uh, first trimester due to fetal anomaly versus maternal health indications? And just the frame of that, posing that question implies that those two reasons are the only valid reasons for having an abortion. And what it fails to consider is that, Um, the reasons that people give for having abortions in the second trimester are very similar to those of women getting abortions in the first trimester. Note that my study excluded women who had fetal anomalies or maternal health indications, but um, the women in my study who have second trimester abortions are very similar in their reasons for abortion as women having first trimester abortions. And they are right about their reasons. Those reasons are valid, too. The consequences of abortion denial are exactly as women foresee them to be, of greater hardship.
0: Can you talk a bit about the protesters who are outside these clinics? Um, I don't have you know, personal experience with being in this situation, but I did go to a clinic once that was about women's health it wasn't women's reproductive health, it was women's health. And there were protesters outside and they had to have a security guard because the protesters, despite the clinic saying, we really, we're not a reproductive health clinic, we're just a women's health clinic. They, they were still there. And how rattling it was to have them shouting things at me from the sidewalk. I was, you know, I was really unprepared for that experience. And yet the women who are going to a clinic that is known to provide these specific services are probably steered up for the fact uh, that there there may be protesters, the protesters will say things, and the protesters will actually be targeting it at them. The experience I had was they were shouting things at me that had nothing to do with me going for a checkup. Mm-hmm. I can't um, imagine the impact on these women of after all the obstacles that you've outlaid, the way they know the media talks about the situation, the way they know legislators are poised to terminate rights even more, um, then you finally find a way to arrive to where you need to be, and there are protesters outside.
1: How how does
0: that um, affect women? So... um in
1: this study, um, you are completely right that um, that after the the long search to finally get to a clinic, that that many clinics have protesters. About half the women in the study said they experienced protesters. I think about half, um, but I'm going to quickly try and look it up while we talk. But uh, and the more um, interaction that cl- that women reported with protesters, the more upset they were. So when, um, when women were, uh, just saw protesters, they were less upset than when, than when a protester talked to them or try, actually tried to stop them from going into the clinic. So protesters can be very um, upsetting, but we asked women um, in the follow-up interviews about their mental health and their emotions and their decision-making about their pregnancy and we find that interactions with protesters have no effect on how people feel about their pregnancy. So I think the the about protesters is that they are very good at making people feel upset, but they don't actually change how people feel about their own decision-making and their own circumstances. So I think it's a bit of a relief for people who are concerned about the effect of protesters, um, but, Note that the study does not have any women who were actually deterred by protesters from going into the clinic because we recruited inside the clinic. So to the extent that protesters are uh, making people not feel that they can get through the the phalanx of of protesters and they turn away themselves, they're not in the study. So we may have an undercount of how upsetting and the impact of protesters.
0: so I think this is an important distinction. The women in the study are women who are already in pursuit of trying to get an abortion. And some of the women will uh, receive one and some will be turned away. And you were recruiting them from the clinics themselves. And in, in your research, you, you visited and toured several clinics and you got to really intimately know how they work and what they do, which is something that the majority of listeners um, won't know. Can you, can you share about that? Yeah,
1: um, I think, you know, I had a sense that they were that that this was super risky to go visit abortion clinics and that there would be violence everywhere and protesters everywhere. And that it's partly because when abortion clinics make the news, they make the news because there's some horrible, violent attack there. But there are thousands of abortion clinics and they are medical clinics providing medical services and um, people are working very hard to uh, provide care for people. It's not, I think my impression that they are are, um, constantly under siege is not accurate. On the other hand, since um, I visited clinics and during the Trump administration, violence at clinics has substantially increased. And there's an excellent book by um, Carol Joffe and uh, David Cohen called Obstacle Course about um, the the burdens of trying to access abortion care. And they, uh, uh, David Cohen in particular, has studied violence at clinics. So I'm not suggesting that it doesn't happen, but more that our perception of clinics is that it's stigmatized, that that there's violence, and really what they're, they are, by and large, healthcare facilities trying to provide healthcare.
0: And when you were inside them, you were really impressed with the kindness and the compassion, uh, and and the way uh, in which the the services are provided. Can you can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, um, they vary a lot. In uh, some are uh, medical medical clinics that. Um, you know, probably not different from a dentist's office in how much um, in their, uh, you know, political uh, activity. So, you know, it's just a healthcare clinic and others understand that abortion is probably not like other healthcare um, facilities, healthcare services, and have signs uh, reassuring people that good women have abortions or encouraging um, patients to vote in, in elections. Um, that, that or emphasizing uh, women heroes to, to help people feel, um, to have some context for their experience. And the one very interesting thing that is done is some clinics have um, blank journals in their waiting room for people to fill out pages uh, as notes to other patients who are coming after them. So they start out blank and patients add their words of encouragement or share their experiences. Because abortion is so stigmatized, people don't talk about it. And so this little window into other people's experiences can be very comforting for an abortion patient who might feel that she's all alone in having this experience. And some of the women in this uh, study talk about um, the stories that they read in those journals and um, how they they began to have a little more empathy for other women because they can feel, they everyone has heard the society's message that abortion is stigmatized, that it's irresponsible, but they know their own circumstances. They are not um, irresponsible. They are being careful. They are trying to make the best decision for their families. And so they wonder, well, it must be everyone else there. And reading these journals helps them indicate everyone feels they're the exception. They're making a responsible decision. They're trying to make a decision that's best for themselves and their uh, families. So I think it's, it's one way of increasing empathy. Another is there are other um, you know, good books about the experiences of people having abortions. Um, Dr. Mira Shaw just came out with one called, uh, You're the Only One I've Told the Stories Behind Abortion. And so she is a physician, and these are stories that people have told her about their experiences with abortion.
0: I'm really glad you brought up the journals, because that was something that really jumped out at me when I was reading, particularly one of the young women who went, um, unlike the other people in the waiting room who had someone with them, she was all by herself. And when she got back to the recovery area, the journals were there, and she was able to read through, and suddenly she wasn't all by herself. Um, and that's a really powerful, uh, story in the book, um, as are all of the women's stories. And you open with a, with a really interesting juxtaposition to these women's stories. You were, um, I believe it was at your child's preschool and, um, a woman, uh, said something about how she couldn't believe anyone would ever have an abortion because that was killing a baby. And, You and the other women there were quiet. There was no response. And then when she left, a couple of women quietly shared uh, their own personal experience with, with abortion. And the takeaway from that story is that so many women have these stories but don't have an environment in which they're safe to share it. And this book respectfully and safely shares these women's stories to bring what abortion is back to the personal level of each individual woman's life, yeah. um, which is one of the things that you urge people when they're reading um, to keep in mind, especially in the back, when you kind of talk about where do we go now, um, is that policy really uh, obscures the fact that these are individual women um, who need to make the decision for themselves back to Dr. Tiller's um message of trust women. Um, and also that the media coverage often has a picture of just a pregnant torso. They they don't have the woman's head. They don't have a background. They don't show her actual life. Um, and this book restores the entire woman, her entire story, her whole background, and also where she goes forward. Yeah. Yeah, when I when an
1: article, a newspaper article or magazine article covers something about my study, the I can tell you what the so the um, the photo editor of that publication will do. They'll either um, post a sign of protesters, so either, you know, either anti-abortion or pro-abortion rights protesters facing off, or they'll have just the torso of a woman, <laughs> and. It really and I think they're trying to, you know, shield stock photo models from stigma by, you know, not showing someone's face that they're having an abortion. The implication they're having an abortion. But, um, you know, the consequence is is that we exclude the woman from the conversation. It's an abstract debate that's just focused on her torso as if she hasn't got a family and her own life goals. So, yeah, there's some room for improvement in how we talk about this issue. And the less we make it abstract and the idea that we can make decisions for other people and understand people's own decision making and why someone would come to this, I think, will improve our, our reproductive health policies tremendously.
0: You present so many findings in the book, and you, you present them really honestly when things weren't what you expected to find. Um, and what's one thing that surprised you the most while you were doing this research and, and doing this project? What's yeah, a finding that the really most- was sort of the opposite of what you expected?
1: Well, I mean,. Uh... The most shocking finding was that two women died after um, giving birth. They were denied abortions. They carried the pregnancy to term. And two women, one on each coast, died of um, childbirth-related reasons. And that maternal mortality rate for about 200 women delivering, that rate of maternal death is astronomical. I never expected to have one death, much less two. Um, So that was shocking, and it's, I think, um, you know, it points out that carrying a pregnancy to term, delivery, and all the physiological changes involved are very high-risk events, Um, and, uh, and we shouldn't take lightly the physical health burden of pregnancy. Just because women every day decide to become pregnant because they want a baby shouldn't make us underestimate the, the sacrifice that they are doing to in of their physical health of their their giving of their body to make a child it is it is a huge sacrifice and it is um, you know one that seems to me is so serious that it it should only be done by choice and not have women forced to do it um, so that was the most shocking finding the most surprising from a um from a perspective of, I really thought, I didn't think that abortion hurts women when in terms of mental health when I started the study. I didn't think that because there had been studies of women's mental health after abortion that didn't have a comparison group, but they didn't show increasing depression over time. So I didn't think I would find that. I was set up to find it. I made sure that if it happened that we would catch it. Um, But I thought it was possible that carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term would be associated with mental health harm. And um, it was associated with mental health harm in a very short term. So immediately after being denied an abortion, women who are denied an abortion are more likely to be anxious, have lower self-esteem, have lower life satisfaction. But over time, even after the delivery of a pregnancy that they weren't planning, the mental health is the same as women who receive an abortion. And that is not because both groups are doing terribly. In fact, both groups' mental health improves over time. So there isn't mental health harm from abortion. There isn't long-term mental health harm from being denied an abortion. But there's physical health harm from being denied an abortion and socioeconomic and life course harm. So one area that one might have expected was mental health harm, and we did not.
0: And a couple of the findings that you had that might be surprising to listeners was that as you followed these women over the five years, 95% of them did not have regret over the abortions that they had. Did that surprise you? I don't know that I, I, I don't think I knew
1: what to expect in that one. We asked women about their emotions. We knew, we asked about mental health, but we knew that, um, that just because people aren't depressed or anxious doesn't mean they don't have negative emotions. So we wanted to get what are the negative and positive emotions that people could experience over time. So we asked about regret, um, sadness, guilt, relief and happiness over time. And we find that negative emotions decrease over time, positive emotions also decrease over time, although they are more common than negative emotions. And over time, people report that they stop thinking about the abortion. Um, so, um, But we also ask people, given your situation, given your life right now, was the decision to have an abortion the right one for you? And that's where um, over 95% of people who had abortions report that they've made the right decision. So I think that is surprising for people because um, our conversation is that women would regret this decision, and that is not what we
0: this is a fascinating book that uh, has so much in it uh, that we've just only been able to touch on. Um, but in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you about what projects you're working on now.
1: So um, I am working on um, uh, one study of, that tries to, to find some answers that the Turnaway Study was unable to find. So the turnaway study only recruited people who made it into an abortion clinic. And what what this next study does is to look at how often does it happen that people want an abortion and are unable to get one that they never show up at an abortion clinic. So this could be people who were deterred by protesters who were never able to raise the amount of money for whom the restrictions on abortion um, were actual deterrence and that they were unable to access care. So that um, is following people um, forward as they discover pregnancy as to find out how do people make the decision to have an abortion and who is able versus unable to get an abortion. That's a study in the United States. And then I have a study um, working with scientists in Nepal to look at um, the experiences of women seeking abortion in Nepal, some of whom receive their abortion and some of whom don't. But the context in Nepal is different from the United States in that um, child health, here we found differences in child health um, for women, the existing children's development based on whether their mom received an abortion or not. But there, um, the, the, uh, the consequences for children's health are even more um, acute with some large fraction of kids experiencing stunting from insufficient food over a long period of time. And so we're looking at a broader range of health outcomes for, ex- for the children of women who receive abortions versus who are denied abortions. And then one study that I'm hoping to do, but uh, I'm currently, uh, my grant proposal is under review, is to look at what women would actually want in a contraceptive method. So given that contraceptive methods have side effects, what features could they have that would make women actually want to use them? Um, And um, so it's a woman-centered focus on contraceptive preferences. And we'll uh, see if we can uh, come up with a method or a few more methods that meet more people's needs.
0: Those sound really fascinating. And I hope the turnaway study makes it to the desk of the people who are asked the question, why would a woman want an abortion so they can answer that question next time that they're asked and they can answer it intelligently and with compassion. Um, Dr. Diana Foster-Green, thank you so much for being here today and telling us about your book, The Turnaway Study. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.